Hey, I am excited to tell you about this month's sponsorship. This month's episodes are sponsored by Crossway, publisher of the English Standard Version of the Bible and a high-end line of heirloom Bibles that are designed to reflect the beauty of God's Word. Each heirloom Bible is skillfully crafted using the highest quality materials and expert craftsmanship. With carefully chosen premium goatskin covers, durable edge lines, smith-sewn binding, beautiful art, gilding, and premium Bible paper chosen for optimal quality, readability, and durability. Learn more at crossway.org. On a personal note, I have one of these Bibles. It actually fell off the top of my car one day and got ran over on the interstate. And it survived. It actually survived. The binding is still good, and I still preach from it every single week. And also, we have a great giveaway going on right now with Crossway. You can jump on Twitter or on theshepherdscrook.co and see it. We are giving away an heirloom Bible, the pastor's book by Kent Hughes, the imperfect pastor by Zach Eswine, the pastor's justification by Jared C. Wilson, and nine marks of a healthy church by Mark Dever. Look online and sign up today. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor coming alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. I'm here with my friend Michael Kelly down in Nashville, Tennessee. How you doing, Michael? I'm doing well, thank you. Good. Good. Well, here, here's what we'll do. We'll pray, and then I'm going to ask you to tell you just to tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are, what you mm-hmm. do, and uh, and then we'll get into some a uh, few questions here in just uh, in just a little bit. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity we have to uh, utilize technology and just talk about you and talk about your word, talk about ministry and family, and just ask that you would lead this time. As so I've got these qu- questions prepared for Michael, I just pray that. Uh, that these would be helpful. I just want them to be helpful, and I want them to honor you. And so uh, lead his answers and this discussion, and help us to have a good time doing it. And I pray that everybody listening in would be uh, would be helped as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, for those who may not know who you are, Michael, why don't you go ahead and just tell us a little bit about yourself and your family and what you do. Sure, sure. Uh, so Michael Kelly is my name. Uh, and uh, I, uh, career-wise... Um, I work at Lifeway Christian Resources, and uh, I am the director of discipleship and groups ministry at Lifeway. Um, what that means practically is that uh, I, I lead the team that creates most of the uh, Bible study and event resources for adults that Lifeway creates. So, like ongoing curriculum and standalone Bible studies and uh, events for adults, all those all those kinds of things. Uh, we, we work together on those as a team here. Um, live in Nashville. Uh, I'm one of the elders at Grace Community Church uh, on the south side of Nashville. I've been married to Jana for almost 20 years. This summer will be our 20th wow. anniversary. And uh, we've got three kids. Uh, Joshua is our 14-year-old. And uh, Andy is our 11-year-old daughter. And Christian is our 9-year-old son. And uh, so we've been in Nashville for uh, almost, let's see, we've been here for almost 15 years. Wow. Uh, it's, it's been a minute uh, since, <laughs> since we've been down here, but we, we love it here, love Middle Tennessee, love the people here. It's, it's a great city. Um, 
so yeah, that's a little Good. bit about who we are. That's cool. It's crazy how time flies. We just had you up here for our for our conference just a couple weeks ago, and we got to talk, and you and I got to work together in 2004, and it was 15 years. It's crazy. It was 15 years 15 ago. 15 years. That's right. Just, 15 years and and like six offspring. Uh, yeah, ago. right. Your your kids are all tall, and I see them on Instagram and see how things are going. They're like I saw you and your son ran like a marathon or something. I think you you mentioned did, something yeah. about that, and so and you survived. So that's good. Survived. He uh, he beat me, so it, it was a half marathon. <laughs> oh he, man, he would want me to say that he did he did beat me. So okay. that was I was super proud of him. He set that as a goal for himself uh, last summer. He was. 13 and so we trained together and then we ran ran one in the fall it was uh as miserable as i remember running being <laughs> and to be clear you did not let him win he oh, actually gosh, won no. <laughs> yes no he actually for sure i yeah. was i was legitimately trying to win <laughs> oh that's so great that's so great uh but props to you for actually doing it as well that's that's impressive uh, well, hey, why don't you take us back to the beginning and tell us? I know you grew up in West Texas or somewhere over there in the in the uh, uh, abyss of what is Western <laughs> Texas, whatever that is. But today, take us back to the beginning about when you were converted, when when you became a Christian. Just kind of bring us up to speed on that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it it is West Texas. So I grew up in a town called Canyon, Texas. Uh, it, it's sort of out in, in the middle of a, a lot of farmland. So a lot of farming and a lot of wind happens out there. It's uh, if, if you need a this is this is sort of how out of the way it is. Uh, the landmark is Amarillo, Texas. Okay. So <laughs> it's it's just south of Amarillo, Texas. Okay. And um, what, wasn't there a small claim to fame there, where like Ryan Leaf was there for a minute or something like that? He was. Yeah. That's he right. Was, I went to I went to school at, at a school called West Texas A and M in that same small town. Uh, West Texas A and M used to be West Texas State. Okay. And I've, well, I guess it was probably a, it was named for one of those two things when Ryan Leap was was there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so grew up there. Uh, grew up. Uh, you know, my 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 parents both loved the Lord, hmm. and uh, so I grew up sort of indoctrinated into the church, okay. uh, First Baptist Church of Canyon, Texas, and you know the the pastor at the time when I was growing up was uh really faithful preached the gospel every sunday gave an, an invitation wow. uh, every sunday uh to respond to the gospel and uh as best i recall about when i was about eight years old i i very freely responded to that invitation and walked mm. down to the front of the church and brother jim hancock the pastor uh led me to christ and i was baptized about uh, a month later Wonderful. um so it was a young, for me, it was a, a young conversion. Uh, and, you know, I think throughout, particularly my teenage years, maybe because I was, was young when I came to know Jesus, it, it was a source of some anxiety for me because I often looked at other uh, people and heard other people give testimony about uh, a dramatic conversion experience that they had had. And I just didn't have that, you know, mm-hmm. as a, a young child. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, you know, it, it was a it was a big thing for me to sort of settle that in my teenage years uh, of of coming to realize, you know, salvation is is a change of condition and not just a change of destination. So mm, yeah, that's good. whether whether you came to Jesus when you're eight or whether you're eighty, you still were dead in your sin, and it's it's just as miraculous for the Lord to spare. 
someone from just a, a life of kind of wayward living mm-hmm. and then having this wake-up call than it is for somebody to walk down that path uh, and and come to Jesus later in life. So anyway, it, it was as natural as it could be. It was very natural for me right. to become a Christian because uh, of, of how our family lived and, and, uh, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I love... I love hearing that. I'm hoping that that's the sort of testimony that my boys have as well, growing up in yeah. the church, and and then, you know, God bringing them to life right through the ministry of that we're experiencing at our local church, and that their testimony is, you know, hey, I, you know, I didn't have to go off partying and hit the bottom, uh, you know, and then get, you know, we're all obviously, like you said, born into sin and, and have to be radically changed by God's grace. But I hope they have a testimony similar to yours. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, so now you've been in, you've been in, in various forms of ministry. I know you just said you're an elder at, at, at your church, and when I got to know you, you were working camp ministry and and all of that. So at some point in your life, after you were converted, there was this internal call to ministry, and then there was kind of this external process and of, of what that looked like, even leading up to being ordained as an elder or as a pastor, wherever it was that you were ordained. But can you kind of explain? Because most of my listeners are either seminarians or been in ministry for a few years, or even I have some listeners that have been in ministry for for decades. And all of us have kind of experienced this unique internal call and then gone through a unique process. And I ask this to every single person that I interview just because I want those young seminarians to kind of hear a broad view of what an internal call could look like and then what that ex- external process into ministry looks like. So for you, what, what was that? What was that like for you? Well, uh, like my conversion, it actually came fairly early in, in life, so... Uh, you know, when I was 16 years old, um, I just started spending more and more time personally with uh, some of the guys who are, were on staff uh, in the church, in particular the youth pastor that was there at the time, okay. and and developed just a really strong, genuine relationship with him. And I think the Lord really used that relationship to bring about this call to ministry in my heart, because I looked at this guy and, and just sort of aspired to be... Uh, like him, what he was to me, what he was to the church, the way that he thought, the way that he knew the Bible. Um, and, uh, and and so I, I went through, I wouldn't call it a huge struggle mm-hmm. uh, to, to do it, but um, one summer I, I just made a public declaration that I feel like the Lord is calling me into uh, vocational ministry. Mm. Um, I've since come to believe a little bit uh, that you know, a, a call to, to ministry, um, that that can mean different things. You know, I mm, kind of, good. I grew up, I grew up thinking, right, that when you say you're, you're called to ministry, it just meant you're on a trajectory eventually to become a pastor. Right. And, um, you know, I like the way that you put it, that it has varied, it has varied forms. And, and I also have come to believe that the Lord will, will move you vocationally in different positions as the time goes on. So I've, I've come since then to believe that a call is primarily to be something um, rather than to do something. Ooh, that's good. Um, so it's, you know, I, I, I feel like that that's for me and for other people, the Lord calls us to be certain things. And then the way that that functionally works itself out kind of ebbs and flows as you, as you go throughout life. And, and part mm-hmm. of that is the external process that, you know, you were talking about. So when, when you say, uh, in, in the environment that I grew up in, when you stand up in front of the church and you say, you think the Lord is calling me a ministry, then the natural assumption is, okay, well, that, 
you need to you need to preach. Let's see what you got. You right. know, that, that kind of <laughs> right. So, Next Wednesday, so you're on. It's, it was sort of like that. So, right. I mean, I preached for the very first time um, when I was 16 years old. I preached my first sermon when I was 16. And um, it uh, uh, in the town that I grew up in, um, there was it was named Canyon, but there was an actual literal canyon okay. right by the town uh, called Paladuro Canyon. And uh, during the summer, and they still do this uh, Sundays during the summer for all the people that are camping in that in that uh, canyon that are down there, they have a small worship service. And so the guy who runs that worship service in the summer is always looking for people to come and. And, and preach, and so I got recruited. Uh, so the first sermon that I ever preached was in the bottom of Paladero Canyon, oh, wow. uh, underneath a grove of cottonwood trees. Okay. And uh, man, it was it was a rough go of things. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Does anybody except Charles Spurgeon's first sermon go well? I mean, man, I, <laughs> I cannot imagine that it does. You know, my my first sermon. Uh, of course, you know, when you preach for the first time, you prepare for it forever. Right. right? And right. so I, you know, I had built my first sermon around this really elaborate illustration involving <laughs> Gilligan's Island. Oh, and man. How it, it's, it's sort of a spiritual take on Gilligan's Island. And so I wrote this whole thing out, you know, five pages of illustration. And then at the end of the sermon, I thought, you know, it would be a good idea if I could find some Bible verses to stick in here. <laughs> Might be a good um, idea, right. <laughs> so I went back and found, you know, some stuff about islands and, and tried to throw that in there. And, and so, uh, so that was that. Uh, and then, you know, it just, things just sort of started uh, happening. Uh, I, I, I kind of, I think I believe you, you grow where you're planted. Mm-hmm. And uh, as opportunities come, you know, you, you pray through them and take them. And so um, I, I, throughout the next several years, preached uh, more and and more uh, until eventually when I was 20 years old, I was on staff at that at this same church that I grew up in. Okay. Uh, so I was a college pastor, and uh, at that time we had a college worship service, and so I was preaching every Sunday night at this college worship service, and, and at the same time really knew that I didn't know what I was doing. Okay. And so I, I, I just, I felt deeply that I, I, I needed some more education, needed mm. to get trained. And um, so that led to that led to seminary, and seminary, I think, for everybody, it sort of refines your gifts and your interests. Um, and uh, and then, you know, eventually uh, made my way here to, uh, to Nashville. So uh, the external process for me, I think, is, has been sort of a combination of uh, different experiences mm-hmm. and seeing which ones fit. And then seeing which ones I I have some giftings. Yeah, in, you know, I mean that's it's one thing to say that I'm gifted to do X, but if you never do X to find out if you are, and and likewise, sometimes I think we we choose to do something and suddenly find out, wow, I actually have some ability in this yeah. in this area. So it's actually I think it's through some of that trial and error that you actually refine and and define what it is that the Lord is really asking you to do for a given moment. That's so helpful, and I, I really love what you'd said just at the beginning of that, that this call into ministry is primarily about, it's about something, it's about becoming somebody than it is about something to do. And I think when 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 pastoral ministry is primarily viewed as, here's what you do, I'm really good at it, and when the, the gifts of a particular person become the primary thing about about what we're doing rather than who we are, 
then things get out of whack. And that's going to, I'm going to ask you a question later about why people burn out, why pastors, you know, uh, either have moral failures or burn out. And I think a lot of that can be tied to, uh, I'm really good at this and therefore I'm not becoming who God is calling me to be. I'm just doing what I'm good at. And uh, so I think that's a helpful distinction for me. I wrote that down and I'm going to think more about that. It's helpful. Um, so J.I. J. Packer, Knowing God, you've probably read it, I'm sure. I have. Okay, you have. Like any good uh, Christian American <laughs> has read J.I. Packer's Knowing God. In it, there are a few lines that have stuck with me through the, it's probably a decade ago I read it or so. But he said this in the Grace of God chapter. He said, to be sure, there have always been some who have found the thought of grace so overwhelming so overwhelmingly wonderful, they could never get over it. Grace has become the constant theme of their talk and their prayers. Skip about a paragraph, and it goes on. It says, many, many people are not like this. They pay lip service to the idea of grace, but there they stop. The conception of grace is not so much as debased as non-existent. The thought means nothing to them. It does not exp- touch their experience at all. Talk to them about the church's heating or last year's accounts. They're with you at once. But speak to them about the realities to which the word grace points, and their attitude is one of differential blankness. They do not accuse you of talking nonsense. They do not doubt that your words have meaning, but they feel that whatever it is that you're talking about, it's beyond them. The longer they've lived without it, the surer they are at that stage of life that they do not really need it. For me, you've heard me say this multiple times now, uh, but the idea of grace, the concept of grace... When I first heard you teach through the book of Galatians in 2004, my world was turned upside down. I was 20 years old or something in the 19 years old maybe. And grace was this ethereal word that had no practical impact on my life at all other than a point of contention. It was always, yeah, the grace of God, but you bet, you know, be Christian, do do hard work and stuff. And I I always in my testimony go back to that summer to the book of Galatians, and when God got my heart with that book. So why, if you can remember why, what was it? When did the book of Galatians and God's grace, because you were the first man that kind of personified that chapter, that opening part of that chapter for me, of a man who the the word grace meant something more than just, uh, than what I, it was just, it was like I was looking at a man with two heads. I mean, what are you talking about? Grace saves and grace sustains? Where are you getting this, you know, nonsense from? Uh, it was my general posture at first. And so when did that book, the gospel of Jesus, you grew up in the church, so when did the grace of God really captivate you? And what led you to really soak in that book and then teach a bunch of college students that summer? Man, um, well, I mean, you're you're so kind to say those things. That was such a special summer uh, for a lot of us that were there. I mean, it really, really was. And it, it came out of a season uh, in my life personally where what you're describing happening to you that summer had been happening to me leading up to that summer. Mm. Um, it is remarkable, I think, that I – so, you know, I grew up in the church, around the things of the church, around the things of the faith, uh, had studied, had even gone to seminary for crying out loud. Uh, but there was something that happened. Um that year so so there was i don't know another way to explain it other than the way that you just talked about it was that the grace of god and the gospel became alive to me 
in a way that it had not previously. And I think the mechanism that the Lord used to make that happen was this unique community of people that I was around um, in school and in, in life during that time. So, you know, there, there was just this group of guys and we all worked together in this camp ministry and we all took classes together in seminary at the same time. Mm. And so we would uh, go to class and we would study and then we would talk about what we were learning, not just from class, what the Lord was teaching us. And through those relationships, I started to sense and, and feel and experience uh, grace in a, in a different way and just mm. began to, you know, the Lord was, was sort of, uh, waking me up to that. So the reason that I, I chose to teach Galatians, uh, that summer was because that book had become super meaningful to me, uh, during the year leading, leading up to it, because, you know, in Galatians, Paul, he just, I mean, it's almost violent the way that he defends <laughs> and advocates for grace alone, faith yeah. alone, and Christ alone. Yeah, to the uh, point of calling for blood, just go ahead and emasculate yourself. Totally. <laughs> I, I mean, it is, he, is, uh, he is just all out. Uh, and that is the, at that time in my life, that is just the way that I felt. I mean, I've, I just I felt it so deeply then. Mm. Um, and, uh, uh, and so it really, you know, everything that, everything that we talked about that summer and walking through that book was, at least from my perspective, was birthed out of the previous year of having kind of this awakening and a freshness uh, to what it means to, to not just believe the gospel and then move on, but to center your whole life on the gospel yeah. uh, and to come back again and again uh, to... Uh, the truth of the gospel and the grace of God to fuel everything that you do. Man, that's so good. I remember that summer because I think that, you know, the, when we have a, you know, I think Chuck Colson wrote a book years ago called Grace Awakening. Jared Wilson, Gospel Wakefulness, Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, shapes it as the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Everybody has these down through church histories, the experiences of there had been faith before, but then something happened in my life where God just blew me up in the best sort of way. And there was a combination. And do you remember that summer? Because it's like that goes along with a passion for God's glory. When when grace comes alive, there's a passion for, hey, what about God here? You know, we want God to be honored. And there was a particular worship leader. I don't know if you remember it this year. Really wide, widely known, big worship leader who was up there dancing around. And, and I remember you were fiery hot, about ready to come out and shut this worship service down that night. Because this guy was up, up there gyrating around and like, you know, singing U2 stuff and... and do you remember that? I, you know, I, I don't particularly remember it, but I, I, I don't doubt that that, that, that oh. was... <laughs> oh, if I said the name and told you the location, you would remember it. I promise. Okay. I think you okay. would. So when we get done with this interview, I'll bring that back up. But, okay. uh, but then that summer, you remember, that was the summer also that I remember hearing for preaching for the... Because we had Chandler that summer preached in, in New Mexico, and then Neil McClendon, this nobody... You know, Neil McClendon was... Mm-hmm preach in a way that nobody else on earth preaches, but it, I, it was the combination of Galatians and then this preaching the gospel that I'd never experienced before that summer that, man, it was just a remarkable summer. And I think for the rest of my life, I'll look back on that year and those three months and just look at how God used that three months to just change the tra- trajectory of my entire life. I mean, it's, it has ramifications down to 
my children and hopefully my grandchildren. And uh-huh. and so just God did a, a really... So I'm glad that, to reap the benefits of what God did in your life leading up to that because, man, that was, that was remarkable. But... Uh-huh. Uh, so you've never actually been a lead pastor, correct? Correct. Okay. Now that doesn't mean that uh, as an elder that somehow, you know, I think we have a similar view that in a plurality of elders and it's the same office, whether you're a lead pastor or a lay elder, this is the same work and the same kind of men that God is calling us to be. But you've been preaching regularly uh, as a lay elder or just as a, as a preacher from, you know, camps to different churches, conferences, those sorts of things for, for several years now. And then you have your job, which is a high capacity job. You work a lot of hours, work really hard. And you you do, from what I can tell, everything you do from the books that you write to just the times that I've heard you preach or had you have to preach for me, do just a fa- fantastic job with everything that you, that you do. And then you have your family, a wonderful family, several kids, your wife, Jana, how do you prioritize with all the hats that you wear and that you wear so well? How do you prioritize that that okay to be qualified to be in ministry as a pastor requires you to manage your own household well? How do you prioritize your family, your wife, your kids first and not get and just to do everything else well also? Well, you're really kind to say those things. I I would start out by saying uh not always well, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's our tendency a lot of times just to get things, to get things out of whack, you know, mm-hmm. for life to become out of balance and, right. and, uh, and, and that kind of thing. But by and large, my personality is such that, um, I'm a, I'm a checklist guy okay. and I am a, I am a detail guy. And so, uh, it is very helpful for me uh, to, to have a really tight calendar. Hmm. So a, a tight calendar for, uh, for everything. Um, so like, for example, if, if we're, we were together to pull up my calendar today, um, you would see for the next week, uh, or so it's, it's, I, just, I don't have just appointments calendared. Okay. Um, I actually have tasks calendared. So I know I need to spend an hour doing X, uh, and then there's another task and I'm going to devote 30 minutes to that. And so you just sort of keep to that calendar. And I, I think that that's actually a really spiritual thing to do, mm. um, because it's an act of stewardship in the way that you budget your time. You don't that's have fantastic. a limited amount of time, uh, and you don't want to waste the time. So you, you account for the time walking into it. Now that has to be coupled with another principle of time management, uh, about, about leaving margin around certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's this passage that I've, I've often come back to in, in the Levitical law where the Lord is, is telling his people, you're going to go into this land. And when you start, when you start farming there, make sure that you don't plow all the way to the edges of your field, leave some at the edges of the field. And the reason why he told his people to do that is there may be the stranger or there may be the widow or the alien that comes wandering through and they need to glean on the edges of the field. So you can go all the way to the edges, but I'm telling you not to, to Mm. intentionally leave stuff on the edges uh, of the field. Now to do that, that's, that's really an act of faith because a person could justify plowing to the edges of their field by saying, well, I'm just wasting the stuff that's out there. I don't know for sure if anybody's going to come by and get it. Um, 
but in order for me to leave it out there, I've got to believe, one, that the Lord is wise in telling me to do this, but I've also got to believe that the Lord is generous, and he's going to provide what I need, even if I leave this margin at the edge of the field. Mm, so if good. you take that principle and incorporate it into the very practical skill and discipline of time management, then what that means is that even as you are budgeting your time, it's really wise to leave some margin around your schedule. So maybe you don't program your calendar to go back to back to back to back, but you leave some 15-minute increments in between your different appointments and your different tasks. And the reason that you do that is the same reason that you don't play out of the edges of your field. You do it just in case. Yeah. Just in case you need to have a side conversation with somebody. You know, just in case there's an opportunity for uh, for ministry, just in case, because yeah. you never you never know. So you don't plow to the edges of your field in your in your calendar either. Um, and then you know some of the other things that I've done to, to try and make sure that things are rightly prioritized is several years ago, uh, Tana and I just took a hard look at the calendar, and this was during a season when I was out of whack. I was traveling a lot for work and i was traveling a good bit to speak on the weekends and we just self-imposed some rules uh on the calendar for me which which were things like you never travel more than uh you never travel two weekends in a row and you never travel more than two weekends in a month that's good um so just practical things like that the other thing that i did um, is just recognize, you know, this is going back to, to the calling uh, uh, aspect that we talked about earlier. What do I know that God has called me to be and not just do? Well, I know that God has called me to be a faithful member and contributor to the local church. I yeah. know he has called me to be a faithful husband and father who loves and provides. I know he's called me to be uh, a, an employee that works with integrity uh, and and with efficiency. Um, so these are things I know he's called me to be. So any other opportunity that comes up has to be weighed against what I know God has called me to be. Another Fantastic. way to say it might be, if you're asking the question about whether God wants me to do something, weigh that against what he's called you to be. And if what you think he's 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 asking you to do contradicts in some way what you know he's calling you to be, that you can freely let that opportunity go. Yeah. So I might get an opportunity to go speak somewhere on a weekend, but it needs to be held up against what I know God has called me to be. Does this infringe on my ability to be a faithful church member, uh, a loving and supportive husband and father? Does it infringe on any of those things? If it does, well, then I, I need to choose what God has called me to be rather than what he might be yeah. asking me to do. That's So the, the schedule is shaped by who you are as far as calling more than the giftings that you have and the opportunities that may present itself. So that becomes a grid or a filter as you look at your calendar. Yeah, of, totally. of that That is unbelievably helpful. And I think for a lot of guys, with especially those who are full-time pastors and are not you know, reporting to anybody, the congregation holds them accountable, the elders should be holding them accountable, but largely are scheduling their own day and week, that that calendaring thing for me has become so helpful and so needed because I've re I regularly bump into the question, what should I be doing right now? 
And on my calendar, if I look at it, it should it should reflect who I am as a man at first, not just as a pastor, not just as a um, somebody who's even doing this podcast right now, but when am I spending time with the Lord? When am I spending time with my family? When am I doing my work? And when are we going to go and play a little bit? When are we having a family day? Those sorts of things. And I, that that grid, that that is just such helpful stuff, Michael. I, I really appreciate that. And if calendaring can get away, it's so quick where everybody else can dictate your life to you. If you don't get take control and get some handles on it, everybody else will dictate your calendar if you don't. It's true. It's very, very true. I, I think one of the most important skills we develop as as human beings, but also as we grow into uh, greater, you know, we assume greater responsibility and leadership is is the skill and the discipline to say no. Because mm-hmm. you can say yes to anything. It's a lot easier to say yes than it is to say no. Mm-hmm. And saying no is is a, a lot like plowing to the edges of your field. Saying no is really an act of faith. Yeah. Um, so it's it's an act of faith because you believe that that uh, you believe that you are who God says you are. So your identity is not wrapped up in whether or not you do this certain thing. Uh, it's an act of faith and believing that even though you know you might make less money because you're refusing this opportunity, God's still going to provide for you. It's all wound up in faith. You know mm-hmm. the ability to the ability to actually um, be disciplined enough to say no. And I have. Uh, Boy, I've I have failed more times than I've succeeded in that. But by God's grace, hopefully, He's continuing to develop that in me yeah. of of knowing of of knowing when to say yes and to very liberally say no when it's the when it's the right moment to do that. It's good. That's good. Let's uh, shift a little bit. Your work is involved with small groups and all things groups in the life of the local church, primarily for Southern Baptist churches. I know that. A lot of other denominations or non-denominational churches utilize everything that comes out of LifeWay, and LifeWay does such a good job with curriculum and with small group material and just with a lot of different things. Why are small groups, why are groups so important? And you're devoting your life to this uh, at your, you know, eight to five or eight to six, whatever it is. In why are groups so important in the life of a local church? I think they're so important because a a group is, it's the environment in the church where you stop being anonymous. You know, it's, it's where you not just learn about doctrine and not just learn about the things of faith. It's where you actually experience them and get to practice them with other people. Um, It's, it's when you stop being a spectator, right? And Mm -hmm. you actually start being a, a member um so the the group the smaller environment uh is where you actually get to start to live out the one another's in scripture uh and to live in community with people like that is is really and it's 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 so much more than just an option or a bonus for Mm -hmm. the christian uh and even for the human being living in community is really an acknowledgement of a part of what it means to be created in god's image you know just as god existed in perfect community in and of himself, uh, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, from all eternity, he made us in his image, mm-hmm. which part of that means that God made us with a unique uh, capacity and a unique desire uh, and, and a unique need mm-hmm. to live closely with other people in community. So to, to not be in, in some kind of close community 
with other people. So it's not just it's not just disobedience, uh, which it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also sort of a fundamental denial of what it means to be a human being. Wow. So it's uh, it's in our DNA to do it. And the Lord has given us the gift of the local church and and even more specifically, smaller groups inside of the local church so that ultimately we can truly help each other follow Jesus. Yeah, because it's in that small group environment where we we start to actually disciple one another as we as we live together. Now, is there a. Just hopefully you'll make me feel better about this. We found small groups, especially with kids, and the complaint of everybody. Small groups aren't squeaky clean. There, it, oh, it is. Gosh, no. It's so hard, and community is so hard, and, and the kids are screaming even with childcare downstairs, and then somebody cries, and then you have you know a single person, and there's several married couples, and that single person feels awkward, and even the pri- it has to be in the minds of pastors, I think, and church people. Correct me if I'm wrong. That this is a priority, even if it's going to be hard. Have you found that there's just a way to make it re- make small groups really easy and oh, no. nothing? <laughs> okay, okay, good. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Uh, and and part of the uh, part of the beauty of it is the hardness of it. You know, I mean, I I guess it would be great if there was like a magic bullet you could fire some program you could institute that's going to make the whole thing function perfectly. Yeah, come up with that. But, Right. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but part of the whole reason that we're in a group is because when you're in a, a Sunday school class or when you're in a group some, where, where you're close to the other people, it literally forces you into the posture of having to die to some part of yourself. Like you have to die to your own comfort to relate to the awkward person who's in your group. And you have to die to your own um, personal preferences uh, in order to listen to that person who doesn't really know what they're talking about, and you have to come alongside them and and help them grow in Christ, and you have to, I mean, you have to die to your own vision of what your time is when when you're running downstairs to take care of screaming kids. When it would be so much more efficient if nobody brought their kids to this group. <laughs> so there's because it is messy. Yeah, there is an element of self denial that is is intertwined into what it means to be a part of a group and and in such that's also like the the group in and of itself not even what you learn or talk about in the group but the mere act of being there and having to sacrifice something in Mm. order to be there yeah that in and of itself is an act of discipleship and following jesus well and it's so counterintuitive right now in our time in history and our place in history self-denial is about the most offensive thing you can talk about sure. because we're all about getting rid of everything toxic out of your life and getting everything that's in your way out of your way. And here comes just the the concept of Christian community, not just following Jesus of, of deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, but to even get to the point of, uh, baby, we're going to go to small group tonight or we're going to host small group tonight requires something that's so countercultural. Well, it's going to be awkward and clunky. Well, so it's a value and priority, and and that is uh, it, it. Just really wars against uh, it, it. Just the fact of people doing small groups alone is so countercultural because people just don't. They do what they want to do. It's so weird, and don't see the value of that. And so I'm really glad that you're on the front lines, creating stuff and pushing for this and challenging people to get in community because that deny that self denial thing, man. My goodness, people run from that like crazy, especially in our sure. day and our yeah. place. No. Yeah. Um, 
a little bit of a gear shift again, but why do so many pastors burn out, both lead pastors and lay pastors? Why do so many pastors burn out or disqualify themselves by moral failure? Why is that happening so much? Boy, it's, I think it's tough to point to one specific reason, so let, let me just give a few of, of, what, I, of, what, I, of what I think. Um, you know, one is that uh, I think all of us have the natural tendency to tie our, our self-worth, our self-image, our whole identity. We have the tendency to, to you know, we've talked about this already in the, in the conversation a little bit, but we have the tendency to tie it. Um, to our vocation hmm. and that's a that's a dangerous dangerous thing because when something goes wrong with your vocation which it inevitably will yeah um then you find yourself to, i mean you've just lost your core sense of of who you are so i think that's one reason um you know and the, another reason i think is um another reason i think is some of us some of us have an, uh, a sense of overconfidence uh, in our own ability to withstand temptation. This is on the moral failure yeah. side of it. So I feel like whenever we find ourselves looking at someone else who's fallen and thinking that will never happen to me, mm. man, that is one step closer to the cliff. It certainly could happen to me. Yeah, that's good. I, because I know I know what I'm capable of. Mm-hmm. You know, anybody who spent ten minutes alone with themselves knows just how much they're capable of. And so, part of uh, part of the way you protect yourself is recognizing, no, this really could happen to me, mm-hmm. um, and it's not going to be somebody else's fault when it does. It's not. It's not going to happen because. I was tempted. It's because the evil is inside me. It's not just around me. So, um, so knowing yourself, you know, is, is part of protecting yourself, knowing just what you're capable of. I think that's another reason. Um, and, and, uh, man, maybe one more, uh, reason I think, I think one more reason that, that so much burnout happens is, and this one is just more simpler. It's back to the time management thing is that we haven't, we haven't taken time and been been disciplined enough to put ourselves in a, a regular rhythm of work and rest and work and rest. We just we allow the calendar to rule over us as our master rather than seeing as a, as a, as a tool for us. So I'm sure there are a lot of other reasons. Those are three that come yeah. to mind for well, me. I think three incredibly helpful incredibly helpful reasons and i think for for young guys out there or even guys that have been in ministry for a while our capacity isn't for awesomeness when we think about our, our potential or our capacity what you'd said is if you're alone with yourself for 10 minutes it's, it's like my potential or capacity is for a lot of really bad things and i really yeah. i really need the grace of god it's not for a really bunch of good things where if i'm just coasting a lot of great things are going to happen and <laughs> so yeah. that that recognition is so crucial, such good yeah. stuff, and such good um, things for us to be looking out for. A lot of young guys listening, what advice do you have to pastors about being a godly man? It, again, not just young guys, again, across the board, because these things are, it's it's, multi, it's cross-generational issues here, but what advice do you have to young pastors, or to pastors in general, about being a godly man, and therefore being a, a pastor for the long haul? And that kind of ties into what you just said, but uh, we're yeah. wanting to be godly men, so what advice do you have for for us. Uh, so I think a couple of things, you know, um, one is, I think it's really important for 
anybody who is in a leadership role for them to find their own voice. You know, um, we don't need to lead like this other person and we don't need to preach like that other person. Uh, I had a seminary professor one time, which I thought this was very wise. Uh, he said that preaching is truth mediated through personality. So we need to find our own voice, find our own voice about the way that I lead, uh, the way that I communicate, you know, the, even the way that I schedule, find your own voice uh, and be self-aware enough to know, to know what that is. Hmm. Um, and at the same time, be humble enough to to look for and accept correction if somebody can show you a, a more profitable, more efficient, or better way to do things. So I think that's that's uh, one thing. Um, and then you know, one other thing I would say is, I think for all of us, you know, you, you talked about uh, sort of chasing the dream of awesome. Uh, I, I think it's important for us to recognize that this is a it is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Uh, yeah, life good. is like that, and ministry is particularly like that. Uh, and so in a marathon, if, if that's your viewpoint, then you're far less likely to bow at the altar of the awesome or the, the new or the, the latest and greatest. You know, mm. um, it's okay and even really noble to do relatively the same thing over and over and over again um and to help people see that that's okay to do the same thing over and over again instead of constantly chasing um what's next yeah so uh so yeah i think i think those are a couple of things that i would say that's good well this has been a lot of fun and i'm really thankful that you came on here a lot of helpful stuff a lot of thing for me to chew on and and it's been really good one last question i was going to ask what would you recommend what have been the most helpful books for you about pastoral ministry that you could maybe pass along or recommend to me and the listeners? Yeah. Yeah. So you asked me this question and I'm trying to, I'm going to try to give a little bit of a variety here okay. uh, in the, in the response. So here are just a few, and you know, the disclaimer you'll always give is just because you recommend a book, it doesn't mean you necessarily recommend everything that this person ever wrote or, or <laughs> thought. It's not like a blanket sign-off uh, on, on Good qualification. On yeah, but that's good. Here, here, are, here are a few. Um, uh, one is called uh, Eugene Peterson. You know this book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I yeah. think it's a wonderful treatment of what discipleship looks like in the life of a Christian. Um, another one I would recommend just about... Uh, uh, ministry in general is called the trellis and the vine by colin marshall and tony Payne. it's been very influential for me in thinking about um how to set up and structure church ministry um one classic that i would give is called spiritual leadership probably a lot of people read this oswald sanders mm -hmm. uh have come back to that many many times um, a recent book, even though it's not directly about pastoral ministry, I do think it is very helpful for pastors to read because it sort of talks about the kind of environment that you, if you interpret it this way, mm -hmm. the kind of environment that you want to create in your church and also the kind of environment that you want your uh, church members to have in their own homes. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield. Yes, I've heard of that. Uh, it's it is wonderful, uh, and then and then one more I would give uh, that I read 
uh, quite a while ago that was influential to me is called The Wounded Healer uh, by Henry Mallon. And uh, it just talks about the life of vulnerability uh, in a pastor. And uh, I, I found that one to be helpful when I read it too. Fantastic. That's all good stuff. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Michael. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit theshepherdscrook.co. For care and counsel, please call, text, or email to set up a session. You can follow The Shepherd's Crook on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please consider sharing this episode and leaving a review on iTunes or whatever other podcast platform you use. And let me encourage you to remember Jesus Christ.